Would you please stand with me? Then I came to the governors of the province beyond the river and gave them the king's letters. Now the king had sent me with officers of the army and horsemen. But when Sanballat the Horonite and Tabahah the Ammonite servant heard this, it displeased them greatly that someone had come to seek the welfare of the people of Israel. So I went to Jerusalem and was there three days. Then I arose in the night, I and a few men with me, and I told no one of what my God had put into my heart to do for Jerusalem. There was no animal with me but the one on which I rode. I went out by night by the valley gate to the dragon spring and to the dung gate, and I inspected the walls of Jerusalem that were broken down and its gates that had been destroyed by fire. Then I went on to the fountain gate and to the king's pool, but there was no room for the animal that was under me to pass. Then I went up in the night by the valley and inspected the wall, and I turned back and I entered by the valley gate and so returned. And the officials did not know where I had gone or what I was doing, and I had not yet told the Jews, the priests, the nobles, the officials, and the rest who were to do the work. Then I said to them, You see the trouble we are in, how Jerusalem lies in ruins with its gates burned. Come, let us build the wall of Jerusalem that we may no longer suffer derision. And I told them of the hand of my God that had been upon me for good, and also of the words that the king had spoken to me. And they said, Let us rise up and build. So they strengthened their hands for the good work. But when Sanballat the Harnite and Tobiah the Amorite servant and Geshem the Arab heard of it, they jeered at us and despised us and said, What is this thing that you are doing? Are you rebelling against the king? Then I replied to them, The God of heaven will make us prosper, and we, his servants, will rise and build. But you have no portion or right or claim in Jerusalem. The word of the Lord. Good morning. If you are a guest with us, we're really glad to have you. We are in uh, the middle of a series in the books of Ezra and Nehemiah, which the more we go through these books, the more I realize they're not exactly easy to go through. I think if you compare Ezra and Nehemiah um, to other books in the Bible, you kind of find a few differences. You don't find God talk anywhere. He doesn't say anything. You don't uh, find any covenants being made. And you don't, find, uh, you don't find prophecy. There's no command to do this or to do that, you know, like you find in a letter from Paul in the New Testament. It's just different. It's basically just a story about these people returning to their homeland and trying to rebuild what has been broken down. So you have a couple of kind of inspiring leaders that inspire the people to take on these insurmountable odds in the face of their enemies and in danger, and they accomplish their task. So it kind of just seems like it's a book about historical facts. And it doesn't seem like one that is actually meant to inform us about how we should live our lives. 
It's not about, they don't seem at face value of how we should shape our lives around the gospel. So I kind of think that's why you get simple readings of these books. They're usually used to prop up a building campaign or, you know, offer five steps for effective leadership. You know, Nehemiah delegated the work to others, and so you should delegate the work to others. Isn't that great? You know, as though uh, these stories are simply uh, uh, how to win friends and influence people according to the Bible. Or winning by Jack Welch. Is it really just about leadership, or is it about something more? I think it's about something more because the very beginning, like we've said, is that this story, this returning and rebuilding, is actually fulfilling what God said would happen. It's the fulfillment of prophecy. It's the return of the people to bring what God had said would come to pass, to pass in this new work that he's doing. Our goal this whole series has been to see the spiritual realities that kind of lie below the surface of the page. What's deeper in here that's trying to shape us? Now, today's passage um, is a bit of a head-scratcher because it kind of seems overly concerned with the mundane. And so if it's a little bit confusing, hey, you know, just skip it, which is what I intended to do and jump into chapter 3. But after I talked with Ryan Swindle and he shared about his tremendous love for this little section of Scripture, I went back and looked over it again, and I thought, yeah, this is, this is great. But if today's sermon tanks, you know who to blame. <laughs> Ryan Swindle. So the question we've had to wrestle, or I've had to wrestle with this week, and we have to wrestle with this morning, is why did Nehemiah include this part of his story? A lot has happened. A lot's gone on. I mean, he had this long, probably four-month journey to get back. And all of a sudden, when he gets back to Jerusalem to do what he, did, to do what he does and what he was sent to do, he starts talking about this. And I can imagine that if Nehemiah had a modern editor, they would, you know, scratch through it with their red pen and write rabbit hole or rabbit trail in the margins and make suggestions about more interesting topics that he could talk about. But the question why it's here is, well, Nehemiah has an editor, which is God, since this is Scripture. And so for some reason, God wants us to walk with Nehemiah as he explores the crumbled city of Jerusalem in great detail. Somewhere in the seemingly mundane set of facts, God is speaking to us, which is, I think, what we want in our lives, is it not? The vast majority of our lives is utterly mundane. Picking up the kids, um, dropping off the kids, load of laundry, 30-minute commutes, dinner time, supper time, lunch time. A lot of just boring, everyday things that we do. And at some point, as we often do, if we stop and think about it, we ask God, are you there? God, are you in the mundane? So I thank God for these passages that give us mundane facts. Because if we can find them here, I think we can begin to learn to find them everywhere. And it reminds us that he isn't removed from the simple things. So what does he want us to see this morning? We pick up the story with Nehemiah in verse 9 as he arrives in Jerusalem. So by way of review, how did he get here? Well, in Nehemiah chapter 1, he hears about the desolation of the walls that his brother... um, I'll talk with him whenever we get home. That's that's just... I'm I'm sorry. I'm sorry. Sorry for the stretch ups. <laughs> He's grounded. <laughs> Insubordinate. Um, so, 
Let's get back on track. Okay, so if we remember from last week in chapter 1, Nehemiah hears from his brother that returns from Jerusalem, and he asks, how do the exiles fare in the homeland? And he said, well, they're living in shame, living in danger, and the city and its walls lie in complete ruins. And so Nehemiah is cut to his core, and his heart breaks. And he spends the next four months mourning and praying and fasting. But in the midst of that, he remembers God's promises from the time of Moses, centuries before, that even though Israel would rebel, if, and they were scattered among the nations, if they were willing to return to him, then he would gather them from even the farthest reaches of heaven so that he might dwell with them once again. Nehemiah remembers how committed God is to his purposes. He remembers God's mercy, and out of that, Nehemiah makes the bold request of God and the bold request of the king to return and rebuild the walls. And he's granted the permission to rebuild. So as Nehemiah returns to the region, we aren't really given any details about his journey there, but if we could begin to think about it, I think we'd probably find some tension in between that space from verse 8 to verse 9 about as he's journeying back to Jerusalem, I'm sure it was filled with all sorts of conflicting emotions. Let's remember that Nehemiah is traveling to the saddest place on earth for him. And it was a long journey, to, and he had plenty of time to think about it. And so this isn't just some construction project that Nehemiah is wanting to undertake. He's traveling to the crumbled ruins of his homeland and trusting that God would restore it. So let's not let the tension be lost on us. He had to imagine um, how the people that had no idea who he was would respond. I'm sure he had to wonder if the challenge would be too great. What would he find when he got to Jerusalem? Will the challenge be insurmountable? Will I be able to handle it? Will I die in this dangerous city? Immediately in this passage, we're met with the tension of how inviting and how frightening it is to go where God wants you to go. I think it's in like Peter and John 6 where Jesus gives a hard teaching and everyone leaves and walks away. And Jesus turns to his disciples and he says, are you going to leave me too? And Peter responds, where else do I have to go? You have the words of life. It's so difficult to understand your teaching and yet I just can't walk away. It's burdensome and it's freeing all at the same time. As hard as it is, they're just something that keeps drawing me forward. And I would imagine Nehemiah struggled with that same tension, that to move closer to God and accept his purposes, it felt both threatening and inviting all at the same time. So he returns to Jerusalem, and he finally has the opportunity to see reality, to see the truth of what has caused so much grief. He has to see it for himself. He heard that the walls of the city were broken down, and I'm sure he imagined what it would be like, but now he sees it for himself. And the one thing he doesn't do is he doesn't minimize it, doesn't say it isn't a big deal. He doesn't look at it and say, oh, this is too large of a task. What am I doing? And then return home. He doesn't run away. It's quite the opposite. Nehemiah takes the time to survey the damage. He wants to see the broken stones and the burned gates and all of the devastation. This place of grief and sadness, he steps into it, and he studies it. He wants to take it all in and grieve over the shame of his people. 
You know, like Jesus weeping over Jerusalem before his death, Nehemiah surveys the devastation knowing that his people were intended for far better things and that they'd lived in their shame for far too long. So he goes from gate to gate and travels along the wall so he can fully understand the extent of the damage. That would be a very hard thing to do. But then Nehemiah does something interesting in verses 13 and 15. We read it as the word inspected. But there's a little bit deeper of a range of meaning with that word. It's a little bit broader. What Nehemiah is telling us is the word that he uses there that's only used in the entire Old Testament in verses 13 and 15 is that as he surveyed the damage, the word inspected actually means that he inspected with hopeful expectation. He inspected with hopeful expectation. So what he's saying is the more he understood the destruction, the more hope he had. The more he returned and studied the damage and devastation, hope began to return. And now he began to reimagine the walls and gates being rebuilt and restored. And he had a vision for a future that was beautiful. It was in returning to the source of his grief that Nehemiah began to experience hope. If it tells us anything this morning is that if you want to experience true hope, it will not come without an appreciation for the ruins and the damage that sin has done. True hope only comes when we appreciate and survey the damage. And after Nehemiah completes his survey, he, um, he's ready to rally the people to rebuild. He's not a foolish leader that comes and just says, hey, let's rebuild, as though nobody ever had that thought before. But he comes with authority of the king. He comes and says, the good hand of my God is upon me. And he comes as one who has studied the, de- the damage and he knows the extent and scope of it. And he extends to his people an invitation. He says, it's time to rebuild and remove our shame. It's time for us to stop being a punchline in this land and in this world. So remember, no one's really living in Jerusalem because there's no wall, which means in ancient times, no wall is an unsafe place. It's most likely a ghost town. And like we said last week, later in the book, they have to repopulate it because nobody was living there. It's a ruined city without any protection. But the shame comes from the fact that it's a constant reminder of Israel's past failures, their rebellion, their sin, their rejection of God's purposes, And it brought about tremendous shame. And I think what Nehemiah is moved in chapter 1, when he hears about their shame and he returns and addresses, in verse 17, the people with the invitation, I don't think he's moved just by the fact that they were living in shame. I think that when he returned, he was so moved because the people had grown so accustomed to living in shame. They'd grown so used to it. Shame had become the new normal for the people of God. They'd grown so accustomed to living among the ruins that the shame they felt became familiar. And they forgot what it was like to be free and to hope for freedom. And they'd resigned themselves to learning how to cope with the ruins, the damage. And I think this is a, a very powerful picture of sin that Nehemiah gives us. The power of sin and shame. 
Sin can come in and convince you that even though you live among rubble and devastation and damage, everything is just fine. Everything's just fine. The damage is okay. It teaches us how to spin reality and begin to live by a new story that wants to minimize the damage and not pay attention to it. Teaches how to minimize the damage or pretend it doesn't exist. And this is exactly what we see in the garden with Adam and Eve. Started then and it continues throughout the scriptures up to Nehemiah. They immediately feel the shame that's kind of just exploded into their lives, the feeling of shame they've never felt before. And the first thing they do is try to cover it with fig leaves. They attempt to cover it up, sweep it under the rug, and pretend it isn't there. And then when God comes along, they start to tell a different story than reality. God comes and asks them what they've done, and Adam blames Eve. Eve blames the serpent. They don't take any responsibility. There's no grief whatsoever. And they pass the responsibility off to someone else to pretend that the damage wasn't as bad as it really was. And you can imagine that God would have to be thinking the question, you know, if you haven't done anything wrong and you're not ashamed, then why are you covered in fig leaves? Why are you hiding? They didn't want to survey the damage they'd done and grieve over it. They just wanted to cope with it as fast as possible. They tried to tell a new story rather than face reality. And I would imagine that the returned exiles had begun to do the same thing as the story of their shame just became normal for them. They had to begin to spend their time and energy and effort with something else after 150 years that the, that the walls had been destroyed. And 80 years since their exile, the exiles returned. What were they doing? Well, I'm sure that they dealt with the shame by sewing fig leaves together and didn't grieve over the estate they were in. I'm sure they just said, this is how it is. So they started to tell a new story to get rid of the shame and to ignore it. I'll just pour myself into my business and I'll focus on that. I'll focus on having the most successful children that the world has ever known. I'll double my tithe. I'll have the most gorgeously decorated home possible. And they begin to focus on living a new life that's concerned with everything else except the one thing that they should be concerned about above all else. They had just learned to live among the damage. They'd learned to just say, this is how life is. You just live among ruins. And I think that's a powerful picture of sin. That it learns to lie to us and tell us everything is okay. A, f- a friend of mine that had struggled with, recovered from anorexia, uh, we were talking about it one time, and um, all the way down, even to 80 pounds, every time they look in the mirror, something in them would say, everything is just fine. It's okay. There's no problem. What do you think is just fine in your life? What do you think is okay? There's no problem here. What's true of Israel is true of us. That we need one to lead us back to the places of ruin that we've become so accustomed to living with. 
We need one that understands the extent and magnitude of the devastation and is willing to grieve over it, not ignore it. Israel needed a leader that comes and interrupts the story by they're living by with the reality of how the world actually is. And Nehemiah comes to them and he says, it's time to go to the place you've ignored for so long. It's time to rebuild because God has intended and wants and will accomplish something better for you. Now grab a shovel, feel your hands, and let's get to work. Because it's time to remove your shame and those walls will not build themselves. And I think this passage is included in the story of Nehemiah because it's an invitation. You're invited to do the one thing that we just don't want to do. We're invited to survey the damage of sin in our lives and perhaps understand that it's far more devastating than we could imagine. This is an invitation that is stretched all the way throughout the Old Testament. That in the midst of sin and shame, we don't want to see the damage. We don't want to see reality because it's really costly. It's costly to do such a thing. It's far easier to open another bottle or work harder or find a show that we haven't watched yet. It's a lot harder and much less inviting to grieve and survey the damage. But yet, the invitation of Nehemiah is to find hope in that grief because we are not left in grief. But if we step back for a second, the truth is the surveying of damage is central to your life. A lot of the biggest decisions you've made are decisions about damage. So you look to buy a house, and the first thing you do is you assess the damage. Water heaters, roof, foundation. You select a realtor that will help you understand the problems, that will help you understand what you might need to do, and will be honest with you. So to not carefully assess the damage is foolish because it will be very costly in the end. And you go to doctors you trust because you believe that they'll rightly survey the damage when the time comes, if damage happens, and they'll know exactly how to fix it. To go to a doctor that doesn't rightly assess the damage will be costly. And it's election season. Why do we select the candidates we do? Because we believe that they rightly assess the damage of this country and they know how to solve it. With messianic expectation, we give our allegiance to them because they know the problems we face and how to deal with it. We trust realtors, doctors, dentists, politicians. We trust them to tell us about the damage in our lives. But do you trust Jesus? To not trust him will be far more costly. Do you trust the fact that he says your sin and shame are far bigger problems than you comprehend? Your ability to ignore it is astounding. Do you trust him that on the Sermon on the Mount, when he talks about sin and shame, he begins to talk about sin, that it's a far bigger problem than we know, and that greed and lust and anger and jealousy and hatred are filled, are filling your heart and every heart? Do you trust his surveying of the damage in your life? So when Jesus comes, he spends 30 years surveying the damage of seeing people pursue things that allow them to ignore the deepest hurts, pains, pursuing things that ultimately do nothing but bring death, devastation. They don't bring life. And he grieved over his people. He was a man of sorrows. He was acquainted with grief. Grief was his normal. 
And when he starts his ministry, he immediately surveys the damage and he addresses it and he invites people into it. The woman at the well just met her. Yeah, you've had five husbands and the man you now have is not your husband. He surveys the damage of the blind, the sick, the lame, and he brings restoration. He surveys the lives of the disciples and challenges them over and over and over again and teaches them what a new life is like. He's constantly surveying the damage and inviting people into being restored. And the same is true of you, that Jesus is inviting you to such a place. But he's not inviting you in a different manner than what we have already see in the Scriptures. He's inviting you in the same exact way all the time. But how does he do that? How does he invite us? Well, John 16 tells us how. He gives us the Holy Spirit because it will convict us of sin. He brings a convictor. He brings the Spirit and he says that the Spirit will tell you what I want it to. So you also have in... 1 Corinthians 2, which is a beautiful picture of the role of the Spirit, is that He will interrupt our attempts to ignore the damage and call us to the places we've convinced ourselves aren't that bad. Why? Because He's a surveyor. He searches all things, even the depths of God. There is nothing that He cannot see or understand. He accurately knows the devastation. He's constantly surveying the damage in your life and the damage in this world. And he interrupts these stories that we've selected for ourselves to ignore sin or ignore the damage. And he says, I'm inviting you to see what I see. I'm inviting you to grieve what I grieve. I'm inviting you to survey the damage with me. Because like Nehemiah, that is the place that you will find hope. And yet, how often do we ignore the conviction? We just ignore it. It's not that bad. Or, well, that person did something worse to me. It's easy to see the devastation in someone else's life than it is ours. And yet the Spirit comes and invites us into this work so that we can find hope. And just like Nehemiah, to begin to reimagine and re-envision life, restoration, and what a life of freedom actually looks like. Invite this morning to survey the damage with them. And you might say, I don't really want to. I don't really want to survey the damage of sin. I don't want to see that it might have caused more problems and that it goes deeper than I could possibly imagine. And to that, I'd have to say, okay. But if you adopt that unwillingness to survey the damage of sin in your life, then you also have to give up the fact and the hope that God wants to do something new. God will bring hope on his purposes, not yours. And sometimes we think that things will just work themselves out. Sin will just take care of itself, or healing will just somehow happen. But if you adopt that, the reality is you've arrived. You've arrived in your walk. This is as good as it gets. Because nothing's going to change. Because you don't need a Savior. You don't need a healer. So uh, I told you a couple of weeks ago about whenever I injured my shoulder, um, saving that poor elderly woman. Um, no. Uh, we, um, the guy that did my surgery was my second opinion. But I also got a first opinion. 
injured it on a Saturday, show up to the guy's office on a Tuesday, the next Tuesday. So he does, um, he does a, a survey of the damage and takes an x-ray. And uh, he walks in. He's like, well, you, uh, you broke your collarbone. You know, and I'm like, oh, that's, that's what's sticking out. You know, I, I think I knew that. And I said, well, what's, what's the damage? And he said, well, you broke it. Um, he said, you know, these things just have a way of working themselves out. Collarbones can heal themselves. It should slowly start to kind of migrate back down and reattach with your AC joint, your shoulder, where it meets the collarbone. And so he said, why don't you give it six weeks? And we'll just see what happens. So I gave it like two weeks, and over time I realized my arm is not healing whatsoever. It was getting worse. It was getting stiff. It was getting hard to move. I could move it to maybe here before it was just extremely painful. My mobility was gone, and I was starting to get nervous, quite nervous, because I'm like, I don't know. I'm afraid I won't ever be able to really use my arm functionally again. And so it's like, we need to get a second opinion. And so I went to a doctor that specializes in shoulders, and he asked, um, when he came in, he immediately did the x-ray, and he came in, he said, you got a, you got a first opinion, right? And uh, I said, yeah. He goes, what did he say? So I told him, and he goes, yeah, if you would have waited six weeks, you probably would have lost most of the usage of your arm. There would have been so much scar tissue that would have grown over it that I would have had to scrape all that out. I would have given you a little bit more mobility, but you would have lost pretty much a lot of it. So hearing that, you're like, okay. And I just said, I just want to be able to throw the ball with my son. You know, I said, I grew up doing that. I said, that's, that's my guy. I said, if you can just get me there, if you can just give me a little bit and let me play basketball with my son. I know it doesn't look like it, but I can hoop, believe me, okay? <laughs> Take you on. But I said, I just want to be able to do those things. And he said, all right. I said, let me walk you through the damage. He took the x-ray and he started doing measurements and like this weird math and he was showing me the distance of this and that and all this to say he just went through and he slowly walked me through the damage that had been done and he said, I know exactly how to fix it. I know what to do and if you let me, he said, we will do surgery this Friday. It'll be a long road to recovery and it's going to be painful but you will have 100% of your arm back. And then I hugged him and kissed him. I'm kidding. <laughs> he said, yeah, he's like, you'll be back to Ultimate Frisbee in no time. And Melissa's like, never again will you play Ultimate Frisbee. You're done. Your days of glory are over. Perhaps this morning you've settled for a first opinion about your life, that it's completely okay to live a less than human life living with shame and guilt. Perhaps you've consigned yourself to the fact that there is no freedom there is no healing. And sin and shame is just how it goes. Well, today you're offered a second opinion. You're offered a second opinion through the Holy Spirit that has been given to you that this isn't how it was supposed to be. He wants to come into your life and change it and shape it. He wants to come into your life and lead you back to a place that you don't want to go. It's painful, it's hard but you'll be restored. And may you respond to that invitation this morning, just as the Jews responded to Nehemiah. Let us rise up, fill our hands, and let's rebuild. Let's pray.
Jesus, I thank you for this story. I thank you for this story that helps us understand more of how you work. The world tells us to run from anything that makes us feel uncomfortable, anything that might cause grief or sadness or sorrow or mourning. And yet time and time and time and again, that is where we see people in the scriptures meeting with you. It's where you change lives. It's where you bring new life. You bring hope to the hopeless and joy to the joyless. Jesus, I pray that we would not be afraid to survey the damage of sin in our lives. I pray that we would not run away from the effects that it has caused and to pretend as though it's not that bad. I pray that you would help us to be willing, that you'd give us the courage, you'd give us the bravery to walk with you as you show us the broken walls and the gates burned with fire. Show us the ruins of our lives so that we might experience the hope and renewal and salvation that you offer to us. Give us the strength to do these things, knowing it can only come from you. We ask all these things in your powerful name. Amen.